0: Hello, I'm Madge Kaplan, IHI's Director of Communications and host and producer of WIHI. WIHI is pleased to present a special edition podcast, Creating a Culture of Continuous Improvement that Outlasts Your Leaders. This features John Toussaint and Aravind Chandrasekaran, or AC for short. This keynote was recorded on December 10th, 2019, at IHI's annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare in Orlando, Florida. Now, we can all point to leaders who have championed improvement at our organizations, helping to move the dial and motivate others. But too often, these organizations see their QI gains stall or worse, reverse when a leader departs. Doctors Toussaint and AC have been studying this phenomenon and they've identified evidence-based approaches that ensure a culture of improvement lasts beyond the tenure of any senior individual and can be sustained during times of transition and succession. The podcast is approximately one hour and six minutes. We recommend that you have the presentation slides handy as you are listening. You can find them on IHI.org WIHI. The podcast begins with John Toussaint.
1: It's, uh, it's our pleasure to be here. I'm going to uh, to start out the presentation, and uh, AC is going to uh, bat cleanup here. But we do have a uh, a uh, an interesting story, I think. And what we're what we're really interested in doing is talking about the things that don't work. Uh, you know, we always get to hear what does work. Well, what what doesn't work, and what are the barriers? To maintaining a, first of all, creating and then maintaining a culture of continuous improvement, and it's not easy, as you all uh, know. So the question is, what are the learnings uh, that I've that I've achieved, and what the research shows that AC will will explain that we actually could use then to improve uh, our own uh, chances of sustaining a continuous improvement culture. So that's the purpose. Uh, This is the goal that uh, we've established, the goals for today. Learn the key uh, barriers behind why continuous improvement cultures fail to sustain. Uh, Understand the behavioral underpinnings uh, of sustaining a culture of continuous improvement because it is about behaviors, culture is about behavior. And then learn the principles and systems required to maintain a culture of continuous improvement. So, So there are some underpinnings here that we've found uh, working with many organizations around the world that that matter. And finally, what can you take away to actually begin to create your own plan to sustain a culture of continuous improvement? So what can you take away from these learnings that we're gonna share? Uh, Neither AC and I have anything to disclose, and uh, our purpose, uh, the purpose of my organization, Catalysis, which is a not-for-profit education institute is to create a global learning system around this concept of organizational excellence and continuous improvement, where we take the knowledge that we, that we garner from all of you and actually put it into understandable terms that can be used to really move the industry forward to continue to build uh, improvement cultures. So a lot of this work was published in the Harvard Business Review article that uh, AC and I uh, uh, co-authored uh, c- called Creating a Culture of Continuous Improvement. It probably should have been named Sustaining a Culture of Continuous Improvement, but the editors changed it on us. Uh, so this is available if you just, uh, if you just Google our names, and uh, HBR, it'll come up, and you can download it. So I always, those of you that know me know that I like to start with questions. Because I think the questions are really the the way that we learn. And uh, so these are some questions that, that we put together that I think if you can think about these questions, maybe maybe it will help you understand some of the things that you might do differently. So what's the bedrock of the culture? Is, have you established a bedrock? What What does the culture stand on? So do we actually any thing that we believe in or do we just kind of get lucky Um, have expectations for behaviors and actions been defined not only by the board but by other parts of the organization have you measured and achieved results because continuous improvement is about achieving results what is the responsibility of the clinicians do they have any responsibility in this work What systems have been created that support a culture of continuous improvement? If we don't have systems that reinforce behaviors, we don't maintain the improvement. And then what's the responsibility of both the management and of leadership? So how are they supposed to act and what are they supposed to do in order to sustain this? So these are some of the questions I think that that we struggle with. I'm sure that you're struggling with and it may help guide so let's first of all talk about what we mean by a culture of continuous improvement. So if we go to the Webster Dictionary under the organizational culture definition, that's what we're talking about. A set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices. Attitudes and practices and values that characterize an institution or an organization. I want to emphasize practices. So what are those practices? that are actually going to help us sustain our culture of continuous improvement. So that's culture. What about continuous improvement? And here I always go back to who I think is the guru who started all of this, uh, Edwards Deming. And this is taken from some of his work and some of uh, Name's work and others. So employees involved in improving processes. That's what we want, right? Continuous improvement. We're gonna improve processes, products, and services by applying the creative facilities, that means the brains, okay, of the people doing the work using PDCA or PDSA cycles, Deming cycle, Schubert cycle, whatever you want to call it, to work-related problems and routine jobs. So every day we should be improving the work. That's the idea. Not the CEO telling people what to do, but actually the people doing the real work, identifying and solving problems every day. So if we think about a culture of continuous improvement, what are those attitudes and practices that actually then integrate into this idea of staff members solving problems? That's what we're talking about today. So let's talk about what the bedrock of the culture actually is. What does a culture stand on? What do these attitudes, um, practices, values actually stand on? Again, I go back to the father of this work, which is Edwards Deming. And so this comes from his book, Out of the Crisis. How many have read Out of the Crisis? That's a a schlog, you know? I wish he would have got a writer for that book. Um, But there's a lot of great stuff in there if you can pick through it. And of course, one of the best things was his 14 points. So this is Deming's 14 points. Guess what these points actually are? They're principles. They're what he thinks, what he thought an organization should base the work that they do on. And a lot of people studied his principles to try to understand. Now these were very specific to manufacturing, right? Although he did say every organization can use them. If we get a little more modern day look at this though, let's look at contextually where those principles fit. So in the center of this diagram is culture, and uh, that's the behaviors. The guiding principles then help us to build systems that allow us to use tools to get the results, right? So we're going to create a a set of principles that allow us to then have reinforcing behaviors to build systems and use tools. So a number of the things I'm gonna talk about are are my failures, because I love to talk about failure. Of course, Thomas Edison said I didn't fail, I just found 10,000 ways that didn't work, and I have found at least 10,000 ways that don't work. So here's one way. What we did when I was CEO was we used tools, and we used tools, and more tools, and more tools, and guess what, we got results, because the tools are awesome, they work. The problem is, we didn't sustain any of it. Why didn't we sustain any of it? Because we didn't think about it from the, from the underpinnings of the culture. We didn't think about it from a cultural transformation standpoint. So when a few of us you know, left, stepped down, whatever, guess what, it starts to deteriorate. So now I know that what we need to do is step back and think about this from the, from the culture, the behaviors, and the principles of what we're trying to achieve. So if we look at what those principles are, this is what I call sort of the modern-day principles of improvement. This comes from the Shingo Institute. And uh, it's basically the results, which are we're trying to deliver better patient value, higher quality, lower cost. We want to align the enterprise to be able to do that. We have our continuous improvement activities tools, which are still very important, but we also have cultural enablers. So if we think about the key principles of modern-day continuous improvement culture, this is what we uh, espouse as the way to think about that. Now, if we go back again to the guru, how does this compare to what Dr. Deming originally proposed? Let's look at, okay, so he said, create purpose for improvement. What uh, these Shingo principles are, create constancy of purpose, right? Continuous improvement, embrace scientific thinking, leadership, lead with humility, Drive out fear, that means focus on process. Break down silos, that means think systemically. Institute education, that means respect for everyone in the organization. And don't inspect to achieve quality, assure quality at the source. So you can see these things are very well lined up. I don't really care what principles that you decide are most important for your organization. What I'm saying is you need to have some. There needs to be a bedrock. If you look at the great companies in the world today, Toyota has their 14 principles, autoly. I mean, all of these companies have defined how we're going to do the work, but yet I see so few companies in, the, in, in not-for-profit healthcare that have defined how we're going to do the work. So we need to define how we're going to do the work, and this is one way. Uh, this is one important thing we need to do. We can th- think about um, the barrier then is if your culture is not underpinned by a set of these universal principles, staff do not understand the why behind what you're introducing. I had physicians when I was CEO come to me and say, why are we doing huddles? Why are we actually using this, what what do you call it? P, P D, C, A, why why are we doing that? What's, you know, why are we doing that? So, well, if I had been able to say because we Embrace the principle of respect for every person in the organization, meaning we respect you as a frontline worker to identify and solve problems, I think I would have had a better outcome. If I said, why are we collecting staff ideas? Because we want to teach and use PDCA because of the principle of embracing scientific thinking, I think we would have had better outcomes. So a lot of our very smart clinicians want to understand why we're doing things. And that's really what the principles help us understand. So the first barrier is if we don't have that underpinning, we're not going to be able to explain the why. So have expectations for behavior and action been defined by leadership? So many times, and I think many of us can say this, that you know, you, you get the job, whether it's middle manager, vice president, whatever, you come into the organization, you get a pat on the back, it says, well, congratulations, now you're a manager or you're a leader, good luck. There are no expectations. Really? There are no expectations? We published this uh, in the New England Journal a while back and what I want you to focus on is the governance because there's four different levels of, of organizational leadership and management that we need to, to focus on. Governance, the, the actual top leaders, the middle managers, and the front line. And I want to talk about governance at the moment. So the question is, if we could actually instill the same kind of principles that the management team is working through at the governance level, would that make a difference? So if you look at the, the, the uh, organizational behaviors and performance at the governance level to set vision and, 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 and values, to do succession planning, support and challenge the CEO, um, Use governance, uh, generative thinking to advance the organization. I mean, okay, how are we gonna do that, right? Is there a a process, is there a system, or is it just good luck, you know? So let's think about that from a governance standpoint. Um, How does the board focus on improving the business and hold the senior team accountable without getting too deep into operations? So this hospital, St. Mary's General Hospital in Kitchener, Ontario, this is the way they looked at that, that they were going to introduce actual performance uh, huddles at the board level. And this would then provide the board some focus and senior leaders' focus on key performance indicators. The board became more engaged and informed. What are we working on in this organization? What's the target? What's our performance? What have we learned? These were the questions that board members were starting to ask. Here's an example of a board chair actually leading an improvement huddle. So what's interesting <clears throat> is that the, you can see in the back background, there's a, there's a huddle board there with performance measures, with red and green uh, performance measures. And if you look down in the right lower quadrant, there's, there's little improvement tickets there. And that's board members' ideas of how we could improve governance not how we can tell you what to do, how we can improve our governance practices. So they're beginning to use visual management, they're beginning to use um, performance metrics to actually measure how they're doing as a board. And why is that so important? You know Because this is the board chair who actually started this work at St. Mary's. This is what she said: that board meetings are very nice. Board members do not ask challenging questions. Board members do not know what questions to ask. The senior team is not held accountable and board members have no way of knowing how strategy actually is translated to the front line. That's where they started. As they started to use the continuous improvement principles at the board level, this is where they got to. Board members were aware of the priorities now and the performance. They were comfortable asking challenging questions. Senior team member description about performance and action plans were concise. They had it on one page paper. Problems were identified clearly. Board members actually went to the gimbal, which is where the value was created, to see how their strategy and vision was actually being applied at the front line. And there was accountability. So, the point being, if we actually begin to instill this thinking at the, at the, at the governance level, Will that lead to a continuous improvement culture that sustains? Our hypothesis is that it will. And the people at St. Charles in Bend, Oregon, feel the same way. In fact, they've gotten so serious that they've created a series of board uh, behavioral, uh, uh, principle-based behavioral interviews. And they've taken these core principles, some of which I've shown you, and they they've said, okay, what questions should we ask if we're, gonna get, if we're gonna look at prospective board members? So here's some interesting questions, right? If we take the principle of leading with humility, how are we going to determine whether a board member is humble or not? So let's ask him a question. Describe a time or situation where you recognized you made a mistake that you had to admit to others. Now these questions don't necessarily go for board members, right? This could be for anyone. Um, and then describe how you handle the situation. Because how you handle the situation in a continuous improvement culture is probably 180 degrees different than how you handle it in an autocratic, top-down culture. And that's what they're looking for, is how is this person going to be compatible with this culture we're trying to build of continuous improvement. Respect for every individual. Describe a specific situation which you struggled to build trust and respect with a co-worker. So again, we're trying to uh, identify those humble leaders that are willing and able to work as a team. Here's two other questions that they've been asking as they do succession planning for their board and other um, parts of the organization. So when an error occurs, how did you handle that? Is it you're bad, I'm blaming you, or is it the process? Do we have a process problem? And then, uh, in terms of constantly improving, seeking perfection, is management hitting their goals? And okay, if you're a board member, what are you gonna do if they aren't, right? So the answers to these questions then help this organization decide whether there's there's cultural compatibility in the board succession. So one of the things I do is, uh, I'm asked to do, is come and assess board performance and especially specifically around continuous improvement. So it's the board building a continuous improvement culture within the board. So here's some questions that, or some, some comments that, that, that I'm always looking for as I do these assessments. So board members have been trained and participated in three visits per year and have practiced open-ended questions. So this is one of the practices, if we're back to culture, this is one of the practices that we're looking for. Under the governance, uh, um, uh, heading, the board exhibits ideal behaviors in the practice of governance as outlined in a written board code of conduct. Does the board have a written code of conduct? You know, we, had to, we did the board survey once a year. You know, you fill it out, you know, 50 questions you hand it in, and then we have a gap. Never one of those questions was about behavior. We didn't talk about that at all. Succession. So the board has a system to assure member succession Planning includes questions regarding the potential of members to learn organizational excellence methods. And then finally, the board has a system of improvement that allows for board member ideas to be collected and for these ideas to be worked on to improve governance. These are some of the aspects of board performance that that we focus on as boards try to improve their own governance practices. Continuous improvement culture number two, barrier. Behavioral expectations are not established for every level of organization, including the board. And when the champion of this continuous improvement culture leaves, um, if the board members haven't been practicing these ideal behaviors, how do they know how to choose a leader that will? And I think we all have our own stories about what happened when leadership transitioned, and we transitioned back to an autocratic culture from a continuous improvement culture. It's not pretty. So we need to focus on making sure that the culture goes up and down the organization. Now that's not to say that we don't have some other things that we can do uh, if we can't engage the board, but this is one of the important things. So another learning we have is that you gotta get results. Surprise, surprise right? We've got to get results. So here's what I'm seeing after visiting these 230 some institutions around the world is people don't really understand how to get results and they're not getting them. So we get a little bit of improvement in the emergency department and we say oh that's really cool we should spread that across the organization. You know what I call that? Peanut butter spread. We're not interested in spreading little improvements We're interested in getting big improvements and then spreading those big improvements across the organization. So what do I mean by big improvements? One of the things that we have seen that works in many institutions, I'll give you a couple examples, is this idea of creating a model cell. What this is is an inch wide, mile deep approach to changing the work of care delivery. It's focused on a business problem. So we're not going to worry about whether we're, you know, uh, using too much coffee in the uh, break room. We're going to focus on something that really matters. But we're going to create a new process. We're going to create a new care model with new standard work because that's the only way we can get a 50, 70, 90 percent improvement in performance. And yes, that level of performance is possible. And we need to make sure that that ties to the performance of the organization because we need the senior leaders to be engaged and we need to be working on what they think is important. And we also need to think about this not as an individual project but as an enterprise event. What I mean by that is what is the overall patient experience and is this work that we're doing actually connected to the overall patient experience because otherwise we're playing whack-a-mole. We can improve a little thing here in the emergency room and guess what, something else goes haywire over here. Or we improve the discharge process and something else goes haywire over here. If we don't think about the entire patient process, then we go into the reductionism mode and it doesn't work and it doesn't sustain. So here we have to keep in mind that we have complex processes and we have to be working across the entire experience of the patient. So one of the most difficult places to do that is in South Africa, this is uh, outside of uh, Laratong Hospital, uh, near the uh, Sueto, um, uh area, and this is where most people live, okay? I took this picture on the way to the hospital, it's about a mile from the hospital, and uh, they live in dirt forest shanties, and frankly, most of the workers live in dirt forest shanties. So if you want to tell me about barriers to improvement, I would think this would be probably one of them. But what's interesting is this young lady, uh, her name is Ms. Dubay. She is the director of the maternal fetal unit at Lertong Hospital, which is an 800-bed community hospital in the poorest part of South Africa. And what I want you to do is just listen to her for for one minute, explaining what she's doing and, and, and why she's doing it. but we need some... throw away
2: the six key priorities in South Africa, but we actually incorporated them into the six key six, uh, pillars so that we should be relevant to the people at the grassroots. And so because we are focused on maternity, then we had to choose our drivers to say what is driving us. And our, the two drivers that we chose were to reduce the avoidable maternal death and also to reduce the avoidable stillbirths. Because Maternal death uh, is the one, actually, that, uh, you know, like, is one of the strategic goals when it comes to the ministerial key strategic objectives, and it's also the other one to reduce child mortality. And the reduction of avoidable stillbirth actually determine the quality of the intrapartum care that we provide to the women. So we thought those two drivers were more relevant to us.
1: So on. So this is a place where... They have 28 um, deaths per uh, thousand in, in, uh, in the unit. And um, that's a big problem. And so they focused on these two problems. And what they did was they created a completely different management system. AC will talk a little bit about what that management system looks like. But they also redesigned the care in both of these units. And they focused on uh, identifying where the problems were, the staff identified where the problems were, and what was driving these uh, maternal and NICU deaths. So within the last year, uh, it's been quite remarkable, the the maternal model cell has had zero deaths um, through October of, of 2019. In 2017, they had 15 deaths. If you look at neonatal intensive care unit, you can see dramatic you know, 23 people dying, uh, babies dying, down to now somewhere about four or five. So these are the kinds of results I'm talking about. This is model cell work, inch wide, mile deep, significant improvements in a place where improvement is 10 times harder to achieve than what it is in any of our institutions. And one of the ways they did that was by getting these folks, that woman in the blue is actually housekeeper and she stands at the front of that door. So this is, the, the, this is how you walk into the neonative intensive care unit. She stands there or sits there during the day. And every single person that walks through, through that door, including the attending physicians, have to wash their hands. They can't get by her. She's blocking and tackling baby. And that's how they're improving the performance. And it was her idea to move her desk in front of that door and to make sure that every single person that walked in there, including new mothers, attending physicians, residents, whatever, were washing their hands, and that was one of the ways that they reduced dramatically the mortality rate in that neonatal intensive care unit. So the moral of the story, inch wide, mile deep, get the staff engaged, they know what to do, they'll fix the problem if we give them the chance to do that. Here's another example, this comes from a large multi-specialty group uh, in Northern California, you might imagine who that is. Uh, and, and if you look at the purple line, You'll see that there's uh, uh, this is when uh, when the doctor calls to get uh, the colonoscopy done within 10 days, and so they start at about 22% of the uh, patients being able to be seen within 22 days. The purple line shows they're at about 90%, so you know 250% improvement. That's their model line in GI, and they got a 250% improvement. Now, when you get that kind of improvement. Believe me, you get the attention of the people at the top of the organization. And more and more uh, improvement like this is going on in that institution. So barrier number three, no results. I've showed you great results, model cell results that are sustaining because they have uh, looked at it from the standpoint of not project-based but culture-based work. So what's the responsibility of clinicians in all this? Um, and for my physician colleagues in the audience, I don't want to be disrespectful. I respect every individual. But sometimes it's things, the behaviors need to change. And so we, pract- we, uh, we published this article in the Journal of Family Practice Management. And um, my colleague, Dr. Elmer and I, actually did a 10-year retrospective on the model cell work that we had done when I was CEO In the outpatient clinic. And what we found were the model cell actually was still in place and still working and still creating tremendous performance. The spread clinics were not. In many cases, the spread clinics had deteriorated in performance. And there were several reasons for that that deterioration in performance. The one that I want to talk about, and, and this is what the new delivery model was actually, which was eight different modules of change Across 30 clinics some of the things that that uh, that we achieved there were 15 minute lab turnaround time in every clinic so patient comes in gets their blood drawn 15 minutes they have their results 100% of patients leaving with after visit summaries medical assistants working at the top of their scope of practice doing blood draws and EHR um, uh, work and then clinicians uh, out of the door all medical records done by 530 pretty impressive stuff that sustained for a while. And then what happened? It deteriorated. One of the reasons it deteriorated, so here's number four barrier, is clinicians decided to stop following standard work. Now, we all know that standard work is the essence of improvement. If you don't have a standard, you can't improve. So the, what happens when you stop following standards is you revert back to chaos. And when you're in chaos, you can't improve anything. So a number of these clinics reverted back to chaos. Now, there's some reasons for that that AC is going to discuss in his presentation. So I'm going to hand it over to him.
3: Thanks, John. Good Morning, everyone. So what I'm going to do right now is actually take what John has started in terms of um, asking this question of why is continuous improvement culture failing? And and the way John did was actually look at all these organizations, uh, 200 or so organizations. The way I have done is slightly different, also very similar is what I do is as the the academic in me, I go and try to do experiments in these organizations. And I actually do something called randomized controlled experiments where uh, I try to help one part of the organization, randomly assigned, do some of these continuous improvement initiatives and then I let the other other party organization just remain as status quo, do whatever they are doing at as, as current, and I try to study their challenges and I try to study what is happening there. And, and surprising or not, again, as John failed in this journey, I failed multiple times in my journey. So many failures, and I'll share with you some of those failures, but I believe the reason why we failed is basically because of the same challenges that John has seen is, 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 is often how do I get the behavioral change going? And that's what I want to share with you is what we found is actually it, the challenge is not about tools, the challenge is not about process, the challenge is about the mindset and behavioral changes and, and that's what we want to share today is what are some things that we found as barriers and what were some examples of how some of these health institutions overcame these barriers. values. So, uh, with respect to things, again, when I studied this, I went to some hospitals and some organizations to understand uh, how do you really start this up? And, and the first thing that a lot of CEOs go to, a lot of health, healthcare management leaders go to, is create all these great things about tools and, uh, and planning culture. So in fact, I'm sure when I throw this on, you'll all you laugh at this, is I've spent um, several days working with leaders talking about planning. Let's plan, let's plan, let's plan. Let's identify the perfect mechanism to have that planning. And it goes nowhere after that. And, and, and the Hoshin planning that we all talk about is very important, don't get me wrong. But oftentimes that becomes the focus of changing the organizational culture. So are like visual management and tiered management structures. I've been to so many organizations where I find that they are extremely disciplined in the way they practice visual management, the way they practice tiered management. But what I find is that often just doing that alone is only gonna create more and more resistance. I'm gonna now escalate problems every day and do this every day, is that my job? And and then it creates more and more uh, resistance to change. Same thing with tools. I have had some wonderful uh, healthcare, I have been very fortunate to work with some, some wonderful healthcare institutions around the, the US where they are very clear in how they teach those tools or the, how they teach those scientific thinking. Uh, be it A3s, be it PDSAs, or be it uh, DMAIC. they are very good at it and they are extremely smart and using the right tools for the right problems. But again, when you do that, What you're doing is you're creating that place where I'm going to solve one problem at a time, one project at a time, but you're not really creating that culture. And what what we find increasingly is that this is easier to do, and this is something that you can accomplish as a leader, saying, I'm going to create in my unit all these things, and then I leave. When you leave, everything fails. The reason why everything fails is you're not tapping onto the behaviors. And... uh, And it it gets increasingly complex because you you as a leader have different challenges, have different behavioral challenges depending upon where you are in your organization. And I think that's where one of the barriers are is basically how do I identify those challenges? Uh, If I'm at the front line, you have several different challenges that are very unique for you and for your team to navigate and and then make sure that they are in the continuous improvement journey. If you are in the middle management, you have different challenges altogether. John talks about this idea of spreading and sustaining. That becomes a huge challenge if you are the middle management. And if you're a C-suite, again, one of the things I've seen in great organizations is that a a real uh, operational excellence leader is passionate. They want to get this done. They have them all the time there. And that passion alone is their own enemy. Because once they are passionate, they're doing everything, they, they walk out of the thing, they don't have the, the other people doing the same things at the same level of passion. So we'll talk about some of the things that leaders can do to help others become a good leader and be passionate in what they're doing. So one thing that we find is that a barrier for all of us is that this behavioral expectation should be the be-all and end-all of your continuous improvement. It, it's the only way you can create a culture that can last is by changing everybody, and everybody in your organization is a leader. No matter whether you're in the front line, whether you're in the middle management, we you're in the senior leadership, you're all leaders. And the only way it starts is by changing your behavior. In fact, I go back to Gandhi to say the change starts with you. So no matter, I mean, like if you're in an organization where you're at the middle line, middle management, but you have resistance at the top, you change in your organization from where you are and show it works. And going back to what John said, if you have the results, chances are you're going to have everybody buy in. And, and more and more, I'll show you some examples that, that happens to be the case there. So what I want to walk, walk us through are some of the stories, like I said, some of the challenging failure stories in some of these levels, and, and how do you overcome. So uh, if you're at the front line, I said one of the main problems, if you want to keep that culture of continuous improvement going, is to eliminate hierarchies. Because what you see is that oftentimes, when you have frontline problem-solving happening, you always have hierarchies and bureaucracies starting to develop. And your job as a leader is to create an environment which is less hierarchical, and that could be challenging. And I'll tell you some, uh, some stories around that. Same thing, at the front line, sometimes you all work on complex problems. You work on problems like readmissions, and readmissions are something which is not going to move every day. Uh, it's going to take a time to actually create a systemic change of affecting readmission rates. But chances are, people have to be on course with you because it's touching. If you think about a readmission in a hospital, it's not just the operating unit. It's everybody in the hospital is responsible for making sure the patient's is transitioned. So you've got to create that change and buy-in, and you've got to keep them on course. That becomes a big challenge for you if you want to keep that culture going at the front line. At the middle management level, like, like I said, you'll be really successful ensuring it works in one part of the organization. Now, taking it and then spreading it, we always do one thing and that's the wrong thing to do and I'll show you why. And how do I sustain it is another big challenge. So that becomes a huge challenge in the organization. And then John talks about the whole idea, if it's, if it's like the idea of getting your board involved so that like even if that high energy, passionate CEO leaves that suite, you still have the right people managing in order to bring the next successor who have the same level of passion, same level of uh, energy towards that continuous improvement culture. So what I'm going to go through are some of the examples of where I found. When we, when we ran some experiments to understand these things, we learned a lot of insights on some things that can help you manage some of those behavioral challenges. So let's go back to the front line. I'm sure several of you here are doing this as a frontline manager where, you are working with the people in order to create, uh, in order to actually work on tough problems to manage patients transitioning care. And one of the challenges you will face is the idea of minimizing hierarchies because it's very clear that when you work in a care team, there are going to be differences, be it physicians, nurses, be it an experienced person with a novice person, and that hierarchies can really be constraining innovation can constrain really good ideas, can actually make people not come to work at all. And your job is to actually manage those hierarchies as well as keep that team going when you work on tough and complex problems. So how do we do that? I'll show you a story here. So one story that comes to my mind uh, was an experiment that we ran with some of my colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. So we, we all know Mayo, we all know Mayo Clinic uh, having a, a, a great facility in Rochester, Minnesota. But we all should know also that Mayo has a health system. So one of the things that Mayo talks about is I want to make only the, the most sick patients go to the main clinic. And I want to make sure my primary care, my facilities that are in uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, Florida, Arizona, even in Dubai, I wanna make sure the primary care people, the people that are less sick, are attended by these local regional hospitals and regional primary care facilities so I can actually preserve the most complex uh, patients to go to my main facility. So they wanted to improve access. So one of the reasons why people were flooding the main hospital was that access was a challenge in rural areas in Wisconsin and Minnesota that they were able to, like, and it was too late for them to taken, be taken care of a primary care doctor, so they went to the main hospital. So they said, let's work on access. And one of the initiatives they said is, I'm going to improve access by actually institutioning our daily huddles. They said this was coming from the top, saying, okay, we have to make sure our primary care units, they are able to free up uh, the doctors, so we're going to have Uh, All the doctors, nurses, clinicians, receptionists, they all huddle every day. I'm going to mandate it as a a mandate coming from the higher levels of the organization. So they said this will work. Now, this will be an effective way where people are problem-solving daily and people are managing their work so that, like, I can free up a physician's time so they can see better uh, a patient that reads more access and that will avoid crowding the main uh, Rochester facility. So the idea was nice. If you think about it, it all makes sense. Daily huddles, daily problem solving, uh, should work in a way. So they instituted this. The researcher and me said, okay, wait wait a minute. Let me study the pre and post. I always like this pre and post. So let me study the pre and post of what happened. So what we did was, Again, we did a randomized control study where we actually helped certain teams to huddle differently, uh, and then the others we didn't, and then we actually wanted to measure some of their team uh, scores. So one thing that we measure is this idea of psychological safety. Our teams, when you meet on a frequent basis uh, with physicians and nurses coming together, are you safe to bring out ideas? Are you problem-solving on a daily basis? Is that improving the culture within the organization. So we measured psychological safety, we measured teamwork. Are you actually working together as a team? In a way you're able to learn together. So we measured teamwork, we measured psychological safety, we measured access. So we did this before they were mandating daily huddles and we wanted to see, I mean like the huddles were taking for a year, we wanted to see what happens after. What do you think we observed? Do you think we observed an increase in psychological safety? I'm seeing a lot of people nodding, saying, yeah, it went down. To our surprise, and uh, as researchers and me, it went down. And, but for you, it might not sound that unfamiliar, because uh, this is what happens. When you institutionalize best practices as leaders, you mandate it, and people usually resist change. And one of the things that we observed here is uh, physicians in those primary care units saying, hey, this is another management fad. Today we have huddles. hurdles, tomorrow we're going to have something else, day after tomorrow something else. So let's just go through the emotions. It's going to go away. So in fact, that 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 nature of getting pushed actually made sure that uh, it, it really was not effective. And uh, in fa- instead of having lesser hierarchies, we actually had more. We had more hierarchies. People were not fearing, people, people were fearing to bring out ideas. So we, in fact, uh, uh, absorbed some of these hurdles to understand, What is happening in those huddles? And it was very uh, easy to find that, okay, for 15 minutes of time, 12 minutes the physician spoke. The remaining two to three minutes something else happened and then they departed. But oftentimes in that unit you had the nurses and the, the social workers having more and more information about how to take care, how to fix these things. Let's not, let's avoid, let's reschedule these patients because they are not having the same uh, lab tests when labs are not done on time so let's move them out. Some of those informations were already hidden but not uh, escalated because of psychological fear there. So that's what happened actually. So when we looked at the study, we published the study, we found that counter to what we think creating this huddle structure really worsened some of their uh, thing and, and was a big barrier to making any continuous improvement change there. So then we reacted quickly, say, okay, what can we do? And we found the the main problem here was not the huddles, but the way these huddles were structured. And and the way these things were not the the main idea behind huddles is to bring that uh, minimizing hierarchy, but it was creating more hierarchy. So what we ended up doing was, We said, okay, we're gonna like rotate the leadership of the huddles. We're gonna make sure it's not always the physician who's leading it, so it's gonna rotate on an everyday basis. We're gonna prioritize the time, we're gonna structure the time differently. We had a five, five, five rule where, again, five minutes of problem surfacing, five minutes of not problem solving, but problem reporting, five minutes of celebration and something. So we ended up creating a structure, we ended up creating a process around it, and we ended up creating an importance around it, where we said, We want to track something. We always respect uh, the healthcare organization's um, uh, true north. We want what's good for the patient. But we're also going to use this as a vehicle for uh, solving some of your problems, which are related to the patient's problems. So one one example in that would be we wanted to target uh, the number of uh, days in a week where the physicians were charting uh, the the medical records after 5 p.m., uh, when they're doing it after the clinic, but because they were burned out in the clinic. So let's actually work on that. And why are you burned out? Because you're seeing patients when, when you don't need to have be seeing them. So we ended up working on some of these problems that created, started creating buy-in. So one of the things that we learned very quickly is if you really want to change the cultural barriers for CI, continuous improvement in the front line, You've got to create a psychologically safe environment. So after all these things, we went back and we measured the same thing that we measured in terms of psychological safety, teamwork, and access, and surprise, surprise, all those things went up. So rather than mandating it and forcing it, we started developing a process where people were bringing out and people were more safe to work, and that created a much more culturally safe enabler for creating a continuous improvement culture. So, one thing we clearly found out in terms of barriers is that we often tend to do where we are actually using this blame game, and this is something that we do accidentally all too, like creating a blame game rather than fixing the process. So the process of huddles was good, the way it was structured, the way this has to be done, was not thought through in that, in that experiment, and we, we ended up creating a, a different process around it fixing these issues and actually creating a culturally safe environment for continuous improvement structure. The second problem I told you about frontline, again, I'm still with the frontline. The second problem is how can I keep my team's work on complex problems? Because uh, most of us work in areas where uh, our problems are so tough. Anything, any any significant movement that John talks about in terms of the model cell benefit, if I want to do a 50% improvement, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. How do I keep my teams going over time? That becomes a challenge. Uh, I'll share with you one of the stories I have on this is we studied readmissions. So I studied, uh, I had an experiment running where uh, I worked with some amazing clinicians at uh, the Ohio State Vexner Medical Center where we were trying to solve this 30-day readmission rates. And uh, we were looking at it in the context of um, kidney transplants. So one of the things that OSU had was they had uh, lots of kidney transplants done, but the readmission rates were about 35% or so, meaning uh, one in three patients come back in 30 days after they uh, get a surgery there. And, and if you look at it closely, we were able to look at how many of those readmissions can be prevented. And how many of those readmissions cannot be prevented? And and we found that the preventable readmissions are something that the teams can work on, but it takes them forever. I mean, like if I want to change something and observe the efficacy behind that change, it'll take me almost a year to have my teams go on this journey. So one thing we really quickly realized is that uh, the biggest mistake for me to do at this point is to drive everybody using just one measure of patient outcomes. So we incorporated something that the teams care about, something that can be easily measured, something that can be giving us some quick feedback also. So in in that journey, we found out that although readmissions is 30 days, we could measure the anxiety level changes in patients to, between the time of their admission to the time of their uh, discharge. And we could easily find that uh, a, a significant heightened points in the anxiety is gonna trigger more readmission. So let's now work on that. Let's now develop a mechanism where we can actually create a process that can allow people to like not be more anxious when the time they're getting discharged because more anxious means they're making more mistakes, more mistakes mean they're doing something wrong, they're coming back. So the moment we flipped it, and we started including some of the measures that the teams care about, we found that that was more effective. So one thing that we found is that um, if you want to keep the frontline culture going when you are working on complex problems, you've got to work with the team, the frontline team to identify what what are those some measures that you think are more important that we can see value in it? And use that along with the final measure and use both of them to simultaneously see how things are working, and chances are you're going to actually create more buy-in and keep that CI culture going. And this is true in different contexts, too. I've given you some examples that we have seen that people are used as a team measures in other settings, like safety. In, uh, in manufacturing, always productivity is something that's more what we call as lagging, and leading would be safety and safety environment creates more workforce, less workforce turnover, creating more more productive workforce. So the more and more you can think of team measures that the teams care about and they develop and incorporate that in your CI journey, the more you are making sure that it's going on even after you depart because they are a part of it, they become a, a part of the organizational culture and that actually enables them to keep going there. So that's another insight that we got. We find the reason why things are not working is this, the barrier. But oftentimes when we, when we do our studies, we find that it's often that those measures are often dictated from the top rather than the front line. And that just because they are dictated from the top and not burdened from the front line, they are doing this as just a project and not thinking about this as a CI culture. So one of the takeaways for us is it's very important for us to actually incorporate both into your continuous improvement journey to keep that going there. Let's say you are able to manage them as a middle management. Let's say you're a middle manager. Your job is not just to empower your frontline. Your job is to empower frontline, keep that going, but your job is to spread. Your job is to take something that works in one unit and then spread it across the organization. It's a very important thing. That's the only way you can th- think about the entire organization actually having this culture. Now, one of the common mistakes. That we do, that I did, is basically using this uh, idea of, hey, let's go to one place, let's see what they are doing, and let's just come back and do that, right? So I call this as uh, uh, benchmark bullying. In fact, I made the horrible mistake of actually going and talking to some of my wonderful colleagues. I still have, I'm friends with them. Uh, telling them, um, this was again uh, in the the transplant area, telling them, hey, you actually have a bad process. You have so much variation in your process. Let's actually fix it. Let's go to Cleveland Clinic, who are about, I'm I'm from Ohio State, by the way, so two hours up north on 71. Let's just go to Cleveland Clinic and see what they're doing. And uh, I just dropped that name. And and it was kind of, uh, I got a real pushback saying, you don't know what you're talking. First of all, you're not a clinician. Okay, so go away you are from the business school, so you just go away. You don't belong in my thing, but we are different. The main thing that they were trying to say is that we are not Cleveland Clinic. Don't ever, I mean, one advice, one, one advice by doing this, is failing this, is don't ever mention the name Toyota in healthcare. <laughs> I mean, they're an exemplar organization, don't get me wrong, but the more you mention Toyota, right, you're gonna get pushback saying we are not making cars, or we are not like in the culture of, uh, in, a, in, a, in a factory floor. I don't mention about Ritz Carlton. These are some common themes that we always say. We are not in a hotel industry. We are not serving uh, ladies and gentlemen in my in my hospital. So these name droppings is what I call as benchmark bullying. I found that it, it might work initially, but it will never work to sustain something over time because they are going to say they are different. I'll do it just because somebody is asking me to do it, but they are different. And and the only way we found that to uh, to spread it is actually going back to what John was talking about, the model cell approach, and showing that it works in your organization. It works in your organization. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that, is um, uh, we, we studied transition of care after any surgery. And, and one of the uh, things that we studied in this case was uh, looking at, um, uh, going back to transplants again, looking at how much uh, variation was happening when, when patients are di- uh, educated about uh, what they should be aware of when they, are getting trans- when they are getting discharged after a transplant. And one simple instruction was that a patient, uh, this is all evidence-based, a patient should drink about three liters of water uh, every day so that, again, they have the, uh, the, the uh, to, to keep your creatine levels down, otherwise you're going to get hypertension and you come back. So just this simple instruction. We started watching Uh, All these uh, clinicians and how they were giving these uh, things, both physicians, fellows, residents, nurses. uh, And we found variation, simple variations like uh, uh, um, one nurse coming in and saying, uh, drink a lot of water. So a lot could be two, could be 10, could be 100. Uh, Another person coming in and saying, uh, drink a lot of fluids. Now, I, this is a true story, by the way. I was watching this as a researcher and me, and a patient asked another important question to the person saying, can I drink a lot of beer? <laughs> and the patient is not wrong here because fluids and beer. I mean, it's, it's right. But, the, but then the, the instruction, when I asked uh, the nurse, why are you saying fluids instead of water, somebody told me to. So, uh, and, and what I did was I made this horrible mistake to say, hey, let's go to another institution, which is right there, and let's actually see how they are discharging patients and how they are minimizing variation and why variation is evil. And I had this conversation with the head of the, the transplant, the physician, and I said, hey, you know what, there is so much variation going on, let's actually work with you, but then let's go and study some other organization so we can actually come back and, uh, and, and, and replicate that. And the answer to that is, okay, it's good, please leave, get out. That's what they told me is like, yeah, come in. What are you doing here? Just leave, take your recommendation elsewhere. We are not not the same as the other organization. We have a different process, we have different people, we have different patients, we are different. So what we ended up doing was, um, I said, okay, you're right. So what we ended up doing was I said, I'm gonna do a model cell experiment here. I'm gonna go deeper and I'm gonna argue, I'm gonna get data from your own organization to show it's not your neighbor's organization, it's your own organization where you have the problem, and it's the lack of standards that's creating those variation. And I did one more thing where what I did was I actually took that and published in a peer review journal where the person who kicked me out happens to be the editor-in-chief. And it was nice, it's a nice take back for me, nice reflection for me, right, to have my moments of pride, proud moment. I said, here's the article that's been reviewed by your own um, peers saying that it's a good article that tells you the problem exists not in your neighbor's process, but in your own process. And here is the reason why you should think about it differently. It was a very powerful moment. Do you think that he came back and hugged me and said, "Okay, let's all work? No, no. All he did was uh, he said, "Okay, we have a problem. Let's talk. But even that is okay for a a start. If you think about it, the person who kicked you out saying that this would never work, by showing evidence in your own process and showing that the problem is there there by doing that experiment that we talked about actually made that conversation possible. Now, does this mean that you have to go on all published and peer-reviewed journals? No. The point is not that. The point is to show that the problem exists in your process actually helps you to understand the efficacy behind that change and helps you to spread that across the organization. So one thing that I what we found very clearly to avoid that uh, spreading problem is that the name dropping or doing that benchmarking, okay, let's go and benchmark, being a benchmark bully, I call that, would never work. Now, that doesn't mean that you should not go and benchmark. What you should go and see is, you can definitely go and see what are some really good institutions, really good process, but then, as a team, come back and say, how will that apply to me? What is it that they are doing there, and why are they doing it there, and why would that work there, and why would that apply to me? and then customizing it to your own needs would work a lot. So one example around that is uh, when we did the huddles, we found that one team actually went and saw and found that uh, the other team huddled 7 a.m. in the morning, so I'm also going to huddle at 7 a.m. in the morning. Uh, The other team had a logic saying 7 a.m. means I can talk about the day. I can talk about the previous day. It's great. But then what they didn't realize that the 7 a.m. shift for them wouldn't work here because these people had a staggered schedule. So it would not work here, and it failed. So rather than saying that 7 a.m. is the way to go, what the team then did was saying, okay, what are you discussing, and why are you discussing what you're discussing in the huddle, and then let's say that, okay, I need to discuss this when everybody is on site. In my site, it happens to be after lunch, so I'm going to create a process where I'm going to create a process around discussing my patient schedule for lunch and the next days before morning, in a way that it's gonna work in my site. So benchmark bullying wouldn't work. The process, adjusting the process is one way to actually do that. And to do that, we need to have a system around that. So this is another insight is, uh, these are great things that you can have in terms of uh, creating a system, but if you look at the bottom of this, it talks about purpose, values, and principles. So it's very, very important for you as an organization to use these uh, systems that will be very effective but to drive those systems, you've got to change the behaviors that comes in the bottom of the pile there. So unless you have the systems that allows you to daily experiment, the only reason why the experimentation was possible in the, in the uh, example that I showed you was that they were documenting and reflecting it. They were using an A3. They were using A3s to really understand what was happening and communicating it in a way others were able to see the value, see the benefits, and then Decide on the change, be a part of the change journey. So it's important for you to actually have a structure that supports your daily experimentation where you're failing. Now, if you look at it, it's all adding up. If you really want to experiment, you've got to create a psychologically safe environment. So it's, it's all cumulative that these behaviors are not just either are, but actually complements each other that allows you to create that uh, uh, culture of continuous improvement there. The other challenge that you have one one challenge is the middle management is spreading. The other challenge is sustaining. This is the biggest challenge that we all have, is how do we sustain? And the sustaining challenge is not just for the middle, it's for everybody. It's for higher level, it's for leaders, it's for the front line, how do I do this? Now, one good example that we found And John actually wrote an article with this, and and by the way, some of these articles are already referred in the the presentation, Uh, is this uh, a a behavioral uh, survey that uh, Susan Heldrick did at San Francisco General Hospital, where um, she found that certain parts were doing things differently than the other parts. But what she found was uh, that um, the, the behavioral traits of those people that are really thinking about this differently are different than the others. So they created a, a, a way to measure them. And if you think about this, these are behavioral traits that you want to have in your leader. Am I, going, am I a good person who is willing to change? Am I, uh, ha, can I practice the idea of daily reflection? Not just reflecting in your shower or in your uh, driving. Can I document my reflection? Can I learn what I did today? And can I do a better job tomorrow? What, what is the continuous improvement mindset that I have? Am I humble enough to go and admit that I don't know? The whole idea of, okay, I don't know when I don't know. That's very important in your leader. Am I curious enough? Am I, should I wait till all the reports come to me? Or sh- can I go and see the problem when there is a problem? And try to understand why the problem is happening. And not solve the problem, but create an environment where people who are owning the problem solve the problem. Am I perseverant perceive enough to actually take critical feedback? And uh, am I an active listener? And this is a very, very hard skill set for you. It's like not telling them what to do, but listening and having a conversation so they can learn. That is the single most difficult skill set for any leader, for any matter. So what they found was they found that you can measure your leadership journey. If you really want to sustain this culture of continuous improvement, you've got to do really well on on these five traits. And in fact, uh, you can actually measure some of these things and there are some so really good questions that they have developed and uh, that, that allows you to really measure how you're doing on these skill sets. And, that allow, uh, and then use it as a coaching mechanism. The other thing that I always see good leaders do is to actually identify where you are doing incorrectly and use it as a moment of truth for coach yourself. Have a coach that can allow you to actually educate you on how can I get better in one versus the other. And, and that allows you to actually create that mindset. So what, what, what we find is this is one way to sustain. This, this idea of really creating the leader who can always change their behavior, measure their behavior, act on improving their behavior is one approach to actually solve this problem. So one of the things that we find the barrier to really sustaining this is that you are not aware of it. Most, of, most often leaders are not humble enough to really go and measure what is wrong with me. The the whole critical feedback, people use the term 360 feedback and so on. But the more important thing is you've got to be there to admit that you have a problem. And to do that, you need to measure where you are in your leadership journey. And we find that that is the biggest barrier, if you think about, as 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 a leader of continuous improvement, to sustain it, is to actually measure it and improve it over time. So that was another barrier that we find. So if you look at it, there are about nine different barriers, starting all the way from how do I create a system, to how do I create the, uh, the board changeover, to like how do I create the people to be humble and respectful, to how do I avoid benchmark bullying and so on. So we find that again, these could be nine, there could be another 900 out there. But we find these are very important roadblocks to your continuous improvement journey and if you are able to like, one thing that we would like you to take our, take away from the session is if I can make some strides in some of these barriers and use some of the principles and don't be a benchmark bully. That's another thing. Don't, don't, don't just say, go back to the organization saying, uh, we just learned about these things from this IHI and we're going to go and exactly adopt it. No, understand the process behind it, see what it works and how it works and then start doing your own rapid experimentation. Do it, see if it works, measure it, and use it as a way to actually do this. And that's one way to create a a continuous improvement culture. Thank you.
0: You've just been listening to a WIHI special edition podcast, creating a culture of continuous improvement that outlasts your leaders. We hope you enjoyed it. You can access a rich archive of WIHI programs, including all shows from 2019, on IHI.org WIHI, and also by subscribing to the program on Apple Podcasts. Search under Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Designed with feedback from the IHI community in mind. IHI membership gives both individuals and organizations the resources, tools, education, and networking opportunities needed to build QI and safety capabilities. IHI members can save on a wide range of IHI programs, access the latest QI and safety publications, and network with other members. Find out more and join today at IHI.org slash membership.